Today we have Christy Vera. She received her Master's of Social Work from the Virginia Commonwealth University in 1997. She went on to complete her internship and currently works as a staff clinician and coordinator for groups at the Virginia Commonwealth University. Christy's theoretical orientation is founded on object relations and attachment theory, two theories I'm very interested in and she'll explain to us here in a moment. Um, her clinical interests include trauma, working with cluster B personality disorders, group therapy, grief, and multicultural issues. Christy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Um, I've, I've kind of started some of these, con some of these episodes with, um, I think there are so many different paths that lead to working in this field. And I would kind of like to hear your story on what got you interested and in, in how you wound up working in, uh, in psychology clinical work. Yeah, I, uh, I used to teach and I really liked um, teaching, but after a while, um, really, I thought, okay, this is crushing my spirit, right? And uh -huh. um, so I said, um, I need to do something different. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, but I actually went to career counseling. And the woman, when she first met with me, said, have you ever thought of being a therapist? And uh -huh. I originally said, oh, no, I could never do that because when my <laughs> friends are sad, I'm really sad. And when they're happy, I'm happy, which actually <laughs> is empathy, right? But at the time, um, I didn't. I, I didn't know that, right? And so she said, well, you know, let's consider it. And so she did a whole bunch of assessments um, and they all came down to, I, I probably should explore being a therapist. And mm. then around the same time I had had, um, I had the parent of, um, I taught several of her children had called me about something. And I said, well, actually, I'm not sure I'm returning to teach next year. And she said, oh, are you gonna be a therapist? And I huh. said, well, I said, well, actually, this is what this, uh, you know, uh, career counselor said. And she goes, oh, I've always thought of you as a therapist. And then I actually had two other incidents where some folk I knew in Europe from some work I had done over there called me and like, hey, what are you up to? I said, oh, I'm thinking about changing careers. And they said, oh, are you going to be a therapist? I mean, I literally <laughs> had the same experience three times. And so I was like, all right, I, I get the message. Like, yeah, so the whole, the whole world, except for me, <laughs> knew, I should, knew that perhaps I should be a therapist. And so, um, so I explored different avenues to uh, reach that goal and um, already have another graduate degree. And so uh, I chose three possible paths. And so I um, applied for a PhD program, which I got into. I applied for a pastoral care program, which I got to the interviewing portion of, and then I got into um, a social work program. And, and really at the beginning, social work provided the quickest avenue to get to the goal. Uh -huh. uh, so that's kind of how I originally chose that path. I'm really glad I did, though, because it speaks to kind of more of the external factors that contribute to people's stress. Right. And that not mm. all not all stressors are purely in our minds. And so kind of yeah. I, I like the broader perspective in terms of looking at what adds to people's distress or, or, or contributes to people getting stuck. And then also kind of helps us look at what are the systems and environmental factors that we need to attend to that mm. that perhaps we can also help change that will improve folks mental health. So that's really um, how I got there. But everybody but me knew I knew that I probably should explore it. And um, <laughs> I'm thankful that they did. And I'm thankful that I did because now I've been doing this work for, I think, 24 years now. So okay. yeah, and you're loving it. I do. I love the work with clients. I, and when I'm in the room with clients, um, I, I just enjoy that. And really, it's mm. kind of a, um, you know, it's a sacred trust and honor right that why in the world should someone let anybody into their life and yeah. share their most vulnerable aspects or the most painful aspects or or the, or the parts of themselves that they're not proud of right yeah. with 
with someone. Um, and so to walk those paths with them, mm. I really do enjoy. Um, if, if you ask my boss or other people at my agency, they tell you all the other stuff, like the politics and the meetings and stuff. I'm not, I'm not so much into that stuff. I, I go and I participate, but, but the work with clients is, is what I really love and enjoy. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, do you, have you heard of Nancy McWilliams? Mm -hmm. In one of her books, she talked about, uh, just the work as a therapist and, and having different people from all walks of life up and up to you and tell you their, their deepest, darkest secrets. And you get to hear all of these different stories and, and how, yeah, it's just, it is a very much a privilege and yeah. I really resonate with that. Yeah. I think we can, you know, I think therapists can probably take, well, probably multiple approaches, but I think sometimes, you know, th thinking that, oh yeah, we know everything or we have all the answers, hmm. not so much. Right. But uh -huh. this, yeah. But if you think about it, like she said, and like you're talking about Daniel, it's just to say, wow, what a humbling experience that mm -hmm. someone trust me to stand with them in this, you know, yeah. really take, takes a lot of courage, you know? So I think yeah. when we take a step back from it and look and say, gosh, what are people really doing when they entrust us with their care? Um, I don't know how you can be anything but humble about it. So, yeah. And I'm not too sure about um, what all social work or what a degree in like a master's in social work entails. I, when I was looking into schooling, um, it was like, oh, either a master's in clinical counseling or a PsyD or something like that. So can you explain um, the path through social work? Yeah. And, and so um, uh, a master's in social work is a terminal degree for clinical work. So if, okay. if I were, if, if someone were to get their PhD in social work, that would basically open the door for them to teach at a university. Uh -huh. uh, like I said, I came out of teaching, not at a university. I taught um, in a high school, but I'd already taught. And so, I, and I actually teach a group psychotherapy class now, which is fun with clinical and counseling psych PhD students, but I really wasn't getting another degree to continue to teach. Uh -huh. And so, um, so going through social work, I, th I think the main difference is, you know, social workers can do all kinds of things, which I actually liked. So I thought, well, if I ever get bored, I can go do something else and not have to get another degree to do it. And actually my first year I focused in my internships around child protective service work and really enjoyed that as well. Um, got really involved in like research around kinship care and some things like that, thinking about, you know, what are systems that can help children when we remove them from, um, you know, hurtful situations. So, and also those seeing the impact and really like, how can we help families and keep families together? Because most of the time when we had to remove children, children didn't want to leave. They just wanted abuse to stop right so yeah. um so think about those things so so the first part is it, it's a broader perspective which then um you know but you can you can focus on different avenues and so for me i focused on the clinical avenue so my uh, sec, my second year all my hours were um at the counseling center where i currently work right and okay. so uh seeing clients there um so that, that was the path I took. Other people can take a macro approach and a macro path. And so they're going to work in government systems and looking at policy changes and stuff like that, trying to um, change the system from that, from the structural pieces of it. Right. Uh -huh. um, although people are always parts of systems. So if you change people, you're going to contribute to changing systems. And it's just a slower process. But for me, it was the avenue that I really like. But, but from that, you can go clinical in a lot of different ways. So some people are going to go work primarily with substance abuse. Some folks are going to focus on children um, like that. For me, um, I, like I said, my first year I focused on child protective service. So I worked a lot with children. And then in this case, I worked at a college counseling center and um, really liked the work there. Um, and then college counseling centers also 
have some elements of teaching through outreach and things like that. So I could keep some of my former skills, mm. but then focus on the clinical work. So, um, you know, a lot of social workers, LCSWs will go into private practice. Um, uh, there may be that part in my life, you know, in the years to come. Um, but I kind of struggled with um, just the social work values about having helping people gain access to services they need. Uh -huh. Right. But also that conflict of you got to make money, got to make a living. So I appreciate <laughs> the people that are in private practice and, and the fees they have to charge, but just kind of trying to balance that. So this really is the best for me, the best currently the best balance of all mm. those things. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And how is it? How is it that working in the University Counseling Center um, aligns with the values of what you were just talking to? Yeah, well, we 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 have a policy. Um, we've tried to design access to our services and our services in a way that take into consideration social justice issues. So okay. I think it's true across the board that the need for mental health services out, outweighs the number of staff and resources mm. and faculty. And that's true, not only in college counseling centers, but anywhere, right? I think yeah. right now in the country. And so for us, it's really looking at what resources does a student already come with? So for example, if they have good insurance, right? Mm. And, um, and so we might talk to them about, you know, based on what you've come to talk to us about and the help you're seeking, you've got great insurance. So let me help you get connected with a provider out in the community, right? Okay. And yeah. so, and, and, and so doing that for them versus like a student who comes in and has no resources, right? Uh, uh -huh. First gen, no insurance or, um, you know, lives below the poverty line, really, quite frankly. And, uh, and yeah. so saying, okay, we can provide some services to you now. We might not be able to provide longer term treatment to you, but at least to get you some help um, that you need. And, and, you know, I heard Scott Miller uh, in a workshop a couple weeks ago good saying, you know, the average number of sessions, and it's been this way forever, is five to six, regardless of, of where people seek treatment. And so that's true in college counseling centers, the average number of sessions for um, individual therapy is five to six. Right. Most of my clients don't read, re we don't, we didn't, we're not in that number, it's beyond that. So, <laughs> so I appreciate all the other people that keep the numbers down. But, um, uh, but, but kind of thinking about what, what resources are available, what resources do students have? Hmm. Based on that, how do we kind of select in such a way that we help people get connected to those outside resources if they have the means to do so. And if they mm -hmm. don't, what are the services we can provide for them in-house um, so that they at least get some support um, right now, so. Yeah, so it sounds very brief and solutions focused. It, um, the you know, what we tell students is um, we follow a brief model that the average number of sessions is five to six, and that's true when you run the data. Uh -huh. uh, I think people work from all varying theoretical orientations within that. And so some people mm. might be more solution focused, but other people are going to say, okay, if, if we can do a brief piece of work around part of your presenting concern, and this is true of trauma work, right? Like we, the cool thing about trauma research is we don't need to work through all your trauma, right? But we mm. need to work on the pieces of your trauma that impact you today uh -huh. and hold you back. And if we can kind of bring healing in those spaces, in some ways, either the rest of it, you know, it doesn't impact you uh -huh. um, and you're free from it. And, and not to say, you know, we can never erase your history, but it becomes kind of like you have a nice bookshelf behind you, like comes one of the books on the shelf versus like your whole mm. back screen, so to speak. Right. And so, yeah. um, so I think we probably have some clinicians who work from a solution focused um, orientation, but that we have a lot of folk who are working from a variety of, of ones. So, yeah. but it's also, you need to be better at what it, what it does mean is I think you need to be focused on, okay, what's the issue at hand and really clear about that. You don't have the luxury of, 
um, kind of a more free flowing um, session sometimes with folks, you know, uh, and so keeping keeping the goal in mind. But like I said, um, I've been there for 24 years and I have a great boss and he just trusts me to do what I think is best. And so Good. that's what I do. And so I have had clients who have, yeah, I appreciate my clients who come for three sessions. They're like, I think I got what I need. I'm like, great. <laughs> but I also have people that I've worked with for, for quite some time now. So, and then our groups, um, our interpersonal process therapy groups, uh, students can be in those for as long as they're students. So some people have been with me for a couple of years and then, um, some people have been with me a couple of weeks. So, oh, so, okay. So that's interesting. So, um, I'm currently in a group class with Dr. Stevens mm -hmm. and this was our first semester of doing it. It's a one. So, um, we learned a little bit about processing groups and then skills-based groups and, and processing groups, the way I've imagined it so far, I haven't worked in any, the way I've imagined it is, you know, maybe you have a processing or like a, on like a grief group or a trauma group, or, and then you do different rotations, like maybe one lasts for two months and then you start a new group or something. So can you tell us about the groups that you run and, uh, and is there like, yeah, is there a specific focus or is it just anyone who wants to show up and how does that play out? Um, they're, they're open-ended groups in uh -huh. terms of people come and go at various times during the, se the semester, right, or the year. Um, and so they're not theme groups because we okay. don't believe people are their problem. We believe people have problems. We do have some theme groups. Um, so, for example, if we have a group that's called Reclaim, and it's a six-week mindfulness-based skills group for folks with anxiety, right? And uh -huh. kind of what we found is that if folks come to five or six of the sessions, they get better. If they come to fewer than five, it's a wash and not really helpful. So we try mm -hmm. to explain that to people when we're making the referral. Yeah. Um, but it is mindfulness-based skills, right? And it, and it is a sole focus on anxiety. Um, and then, for, but for and then we have some. Um, kind of identity groups, right? Um, which we run uh, typically outside of the agency, like through our Office of Multicultural Student Affairs and things like that, right? Um, mm -hmm. And then we have another group that we've run um, with the help of the Office of Students with Disabilities, which has been really popular and successful, which is one for students with chronic illness, which, mm -hmm. you know, the pandemic kind of brought that to the forefront. Um, yeah. But it's been filled from the get-go and there's a wait list for folks to get in and um you know and for some people it's their own illness for some people it's their partner has mm. you know a chronic illness that's impacting their functioning so so we do have some theme groups they're just not our interpersonal process therapy groups uh, -huh. uh and our interpersonal process therapy groups they're not theme based and so like i said but the really cool thing and the thing that's therapeutic is that people often find other people have had their experience and so how neat because they're with people that they never would have joined with outside of group and yet mm. suddenly you know and they're sharing someone else um, you know, we work with the therapeutic pro uh, factors, right? And so universality. So maybe somebody else shares about the shame-based experience that they had, and then that kind of grants somebody else permission to have the courage to say, gosh, I've had a similar experience, or I've had this experience where I felt ashamed, and this is what happened, right? And uh -huh. so, um, so Rutan Stone and Shay talk about group being a hall of mirrors. And so in some ways, you know, the, getting that reflected, pieces of themselves reflected in each person and the feedback that they get there, hmm. um, found it to be really powerful um for folk and it's interesting to see their goals change as they stay in group right so sometimes they're going to come and maybe they're socially anxious that's why they're there um other folk they're you know my relation my romantic relationships aren't good and i can't figure out why or other people are having family conflicts so we try to listen to during the intake process about okay what's the interpersonal nature of this client's problem right mm -hmm. because i've uh -huh. talked to people about how an interpersonal process therapy group 
can help address that, right? And if you think about interpersonal theory itself was created to address depression in the, in the first place, right? And so in some ways, um, college counseling centers see a lot of depression and anxiety. And so kind of working with this thing and even really helping to teach folks empathy, right? Cause they're more, I gotta say the right thing or I gotta, you know, whatever. And we're like, you know, presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E -E -E, is therapeutic, right? And not sure there is a right thing, but there's a showing up and caring about somebody thing, right? That's, <laughs> that's really helpful to folk. And so um, kind of seeing the growth in that. And I will say this too, that the pandemic has made people really hungry for groups, right? Like we mm. have a pretty successful group program, but people were like, I need to be in a group. And now our groups are like, when are we coming back in person? And, you know, we've been discussing that as well. So, yeah, so for us, it's open-ended, but we do ask for a minimum of an eight-week commitment to start just because we feel like it gives people a chance to kind of get in there kind of get to know the other people, kind of find their place, and then make a good faith effort at their yeah. work. And after eight weeks, if they want to leave, great. Or um, Although I will say that for most folk who come for eight weeks, they tend to stay either at least for a semester, right? Uh -huh. you know, so 13 weeks, or like I said, longer longer term. So, wow. yeah. Good. Is, um, is this group up into people outside of the university? Yeah, no, they're all college students. That's a good, that's a good question, though. Yeah. yeah, which is kind of heartbreaking. You know, someone um, people people find our I don't I don't know how you know people Google search for help, and I um, had a phone call the other day. I just happened to be the crisis on call person at work during that time slot who was not a student and was really in distress. You know, and um, so just trying to then and this is what social workers do, right? To also is find resources. So I tried to facilitate helping to find yeah. some resources for this person out in the community. You know, but I was like, yeah, I'm sorry. We're not the people who can help you, but let me help you find people who that is their, you know, role and would be happy yeah. to help. Them. Yeah. yeah. Um, what got you interested in, the, in group work? Yeah, I wasn't interested at all, really. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, why in the world would anybody want to come? Why would anybody want to get a therapy and do group work when uh -huh. you can do individual therapy? I mean, I really did think that. And like I said, I just happened to be this agency and the uh, guy who was our director at the time was the co-founder of Division 49 in APA, which is the group division. And so, um, so as part of my training, I had to, I had to, and I'll use the word had to serve as a process observer. Cause really if I'd had a choice, I don't think I would have. And the very first night was a really, really powerful hmm. session around grief. And, um, you don't really know me, but I'm not, I'm not much of a boohoo or just in general, doesn't mean that I don't cry or that I don't feel sad or have strong feelings, but it just means like, yeah, you know, I'm like, okay. Yeah. And um, I had ripped my teeth that, that night. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, and I don't think it was group contagion. I think it was more just the power of group. And it mm. really, so serving as the process observer um, really kind of changed my thoughts about this, you know? And so, and, and, and um, now I'm our, our group coordinator. And I, when I go do workshops, I tell people, I said, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a convert and those are the most zealous <laughs> of folk. Right. And so, and unabashedly and unapologetically. So, and so now, and we talk in our agency about, um, you know, group is an equal treatment modality to individual therapy. And all the literature suggests this. There, ha uh, there hasn't been any literature that I know of that says, no, it's really not true. It's kind of mm. across the board. And so knowing that and um, knowing that it can be helpful for folk, you know, we really try to come with a mindset of why not group mm. versus why, why group. Right? Yeah, so. good. In, in our class, though, we there was a paper on kind of the myths of group. And mm -hmm. yeah, one of them was talking about one is just that group is kind of like a finishing skills so <laughs> after individual therapy or group is for when your wait list is so long in individual therapy you don't know what else to do with everyone yeah. stuff like that yeah so 
Yeah. Yeah. And really part of our part, probably part of the work we've had to do is educate others. So for example, like um, psychiatrists who perhaps came, who work now at the university, but came from a hospital setting where they did just put people in groups kind of willy nilly, uh -huh. right. Would be yeah. really ready when they talk to students who were like, Oh, I'm in group, you know, but the more they've gotten to know our group, our groups, and then um, some of them have been places where they were really effective groups. Now they've started to refer people say, you, you need to go and be in group, right. Which is really uh -huh. cool. Right. Yeah. And so, as you kind of um, kind of this wraparound service model where we're all giving the same message about this is what's going to be helpful to you and this is why as long as we can explain in interpersonal terms to a to a student you know why why yeah. how and why this is the most helpful and you know they can still we don't do mandated treatment which is also a luxury right so if they say i don't want to be in group then okay fine this yeah. is what we can for you you know and um you know when you get to the end of that if, if you um want to referral out in the community, we can do that. Or if you want to join group, you can join group, you know, so, yeah. What would you be your, how would your recommendation go if I was someone that you wanted to recommend group to? Uh, I'd say, well, I'd probably be like, hey, Daniel, thank, you know, thanks so much. I said, you know, I want to talk a little bit about what I think would be helpful and why. Hmm. And so then I'd say, based on whatever your presenting concern was, I'd say, you know, I think the group would be helpful. And then I would speak to the interpersonal nature of your concern, right? Or perhaps yeah. what the research suggests, right? And so, and I would talk, um, you know, I think it was Sullivan who said, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that part, but that is where it's coming from. Like yeah. I said, you know, um, something like we're hurt in relationship and we're healed in relationship, right? Mm -hmm. And so yeah. while, while you could get something from this process between the two of us, what I want to do is give you an opportunity to be in a space with other people who are also working on things. And then I would, I would name like the various things that people are working on. And I would always name the thing that the student came with because quite frankly mm. i've always had that in my group i don't I've, i'm um and we've even talked about fetishes in the groups i can't i'm trying to think of something that would be broad on the spectrum that you don't yeah. see much of yeah right that, that it would be a lie for me to name uh -huh. but i name it and so and and then try to explain how that's going to be helpful um if they're anxious um sherry marmarash and some other folk wrote a book about um attachment and group right uh -huh. and so they talk about typically the folk who drop out of group earlier or who terminate earlier people typically with like anxious attachment and they do a great job of talking about you know trying to address anxious attachment hmm. before you ever get people in group to kind of normalize it to name it to say this is probably going to happen so if that were oh. you i would also say you know now i know that you're anxious and so i just want to name that at the beginning this will probably really be heightened but hmm. hopefully knowing that it will be you can say this is what christy told me about you know uh -huh. and then these are the things that we can do to kind of help you or ways to hang in there until you kind of work through that. And I tell my clients anyway, the ones with anxiety, I said, here's the bad news. The way to get over anxiety is to move through anxiety, uh -huh. right? So, yeah. so we're going to have to move through this um, in order to get better, you know? And so I, I would do something like that. So couching your concerns in an interpersonal frame um, and then talking to you specifically about how group addresses that and then trying to assess um, where your pause buttons or fear buttons or might be and mm. to begin to speak to those and normalize those and then to talk about you know moving through things to get to the place where you do the rest of the work so mm. that's really good do you know the if you think of the title of that book i'd be interested yeah i think it's i think it's actually called attachment and group therapy it's sherry okay. marmosh um Raina markham who actually was an intern um at our agency a long time ago and really loved group and attachment theory and then Raina's husband and his his name leaves me now so but it's okay. a three of yeah but it's a, I believe attachment and groups like there it's a great book and it's a really easy read so. uh speaking of attachment you so I saw that you 
you go by attachment theory and object relations theory. Yeah. Um, can you explain both of those theories to us and, and maybe, you know, why you got into those theories or why those theories stand out to you? Yeah. And um, I, I will say that probably my theoretical orientation is always evolving. Right. And yeah. so, 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 and I think that's true for anybody, right. Or hopefully uh -huh. true for most of us. Um, but, you know, so like I said, I came from teaching and teaching is really follows a CBT framework, right. Okay. Um, uh, most of the time. And so, so at the end of when I taught, you know, students would say something, I'd say, well, here's, here's what, how I'm going to answer. And then here's what you're going to say. And I'm going to say this, and you're going to say this, I'm going to say this, and I'll go through process. I said, and at the end, I'm going to say this, and this is what we're going to have to do. So would you like to have this conversation? And they're like, <laughs> I don't want to have this conversation. I said, me either. So how about if we just go with this, right? So I will no. say there's a place for CBT work. And for, for me, the longer I've been in the business, the more I think of all of them as like entry points, like where will the client let me into their world, right? Mm -hmm. And this is also a way I kind of try to think about how do I work with defenses, right? And so for some folk, they're going to let me into their world through kind of this cognitive frame or behavioral frame like that. And that's fine. But also then sometimes that also speaks to where they defended and where they're not letting you into their world. And so kind of knowing for me, like whichever door you let me through, I'm still going to try to enter the other rooms of the house, right? Uh -huh. If I feel like it's necessary to do the work. Uh -huh. So the thing, so, so I came out of teaching with this kind of CBT frame, which it's not exactly called that when you teach, but it is, it is a lot of that. Right. Mm. And so, um, so when I started to work with people, part of what I did when I first started is like, what do I believe about people? What do I believe about how people get stuck or how problems develop? What do I believe about what promotes healing for folk, right? Because all of it's theoretical, right? None uh -huh. of it, none of it, um, none of it's written in stone. We can't cut people up and see internalized object representations of stuff, right? But when you look at it, the thing that I appreciate about object relations is that it says we all develop these internal, what it calls internalized object representations, both of ourselves and of others, which really are created kind of developmentally as we come into the world, right? So, so if, if I'm an infant and I, you know, I sense this thing, which um, I, I say it as sensing just because sensory motor is slightly different from object relationships I've incorporated in, but I sense this thing, I experience this thing, it's uncomfortable, I cry, somebody responds, right? Mm -hmm. They put this thing in my mouth, it tastes good, I eat, that thing goes. Well, I've learned something about myself and the other, right? And I've learned a very different thing from perhaps an infant who had the similar initial experience that I had, but got nothing back. So for example, I had a, um, a client once who um, had a single parent and the parent had mental illness. And this client showed me a picture once and it was, they were an infant and they were propped up on pillows on a couch and they had a bottle actually propped in their mouth, <sighs> but there's no, no other human being in in the in the picture right and uh -huh. so and, and their story was that um as they kind of grew up when they were little they would have to call child protective services on their sole parent just because uh -huh. when the parent would have psychotic breaks and there was no one else there and so kind mm -hmm. of the shame of that but also right the dysregulation right if we're all neurobio psycho spiritual regulators of one another right and mm -hmm. the thing that reflects back to me is dysregulated how in the world do i learn how to regulate myself right so of course mm -hmm. folks are going to come with that and so um, so, uh, so I, I believe that right about folk that, um, we start to internalize those things and then we start to see the world as those things. And that the cool thing about object relations is that we have these things called holding environments. Well, our families are the first one, but that there are outer rings of holding environments as well. Right. And so, so, okay, if this is what our, um, immediate family group is, what's the holding environment of our extended family, right? What's the holding environment 
of our kind of cohort or our community and what's the holding environment of the greater you know world or that we're in right so, so if we think about most recently with um kind of the social unrest and um racial justice issues right so so some, a person of color could come from a family that's really supportive right so the immediate holding environment and the things that they know about themselves you know they got reflected back you know, maybe positive and supportive, but yet when they go, start to go to those outer rings, it's a different message, right? And so having to say, gosh, how do I hold that sense of myself that's more positive and more holistic and hopefully more accurate, right, than the message I'm getting from out? And, and how can you not experience stress when suddenly you're like, whoa, because because then it's like, what do I know to be true, you know, mm, or, yeah. or, or accurate about me? And so um, to give you another example, and I give this one to my clients, I because I talk about this like, you know, um sense of self and sense of the other right and, uh -huh. and 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 we can learn more of it as clients start to tell us stories about how they engage with others right you know so kind of this internalized observation representation of themselves or somebody else and so elizabeth smart i don't know if you know who she was but she was kidnapped right and kidnapped by this guy who was kind of this religious fanatical kind of guy right hmm. and um was held for him by a long time i think i want to say years and by his wife and it actually had a child like he raped her and had a child right wow. and then um yeah eventually got free but when she got free the thing that she said that was so powerful is she said i survived by telling myself every day my mother loves me my mother loves me and this is a sense of internalized object representation of the other hmm. that helped get her through a traumatic situation right and so this is what i you know talk to my clients about like you know she could look within and say what, what object relations call this self-soothing object right like she could find comfort in a horrible situation through this right for some folk when they look within what they have is like a rejecting other right or something mm -hmm. like that so 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 for me i'm listening in the things that clients share with me um, about so what's their object representation of themselves what's their object representation of others and and how has that come to be right because the cool thing is the cool thing is we can hone them right i, I don't want to i tell my interns and trainees we don't want to smash them to pieces right because if not if you think about it then when i look within theoretically i have nothing mm. right so um and wow what does that do right and so so if you so i like i know you go to regents so if you think about it internalized object representation of god right so for some people when they look inside there's a soothing sense because god is with them right you know type thing and they know that so it helps buffer right but for you know or for some people their object representation of god is going to come from their family system and they had a, they had really abusive parents and so their object representation of the other like why in the world would i want an authority figure in my life who's over everything because really mm. they've been hurtful so why in the world do i want to believe in god right because uh -huh, uh -huh. i know how authority figures work and i and i don't want any of that right does yeah. that make sense yeah so, that makes yeah 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 so so i try to explain it to clients like that um and so then obviously you know and then attachment theory goes hand in hand and right you know because mm -hmm. because all of that impacts people's attachment styles right and the really cool thing about both of them is um, we can have different attachment styles of different people we have different object representations of, of the other right which hone our own object uh, representation of ourselves, and that um, attachment styles can change over time right so even though someone might have an anxious attachment style as they begin to engage with other folk and as we begin to challenge some of those beliefs and things or fears right and say let and so this is where cbt comes back into the picture right so people they're like i thought you don't like cbt i said well you always have to do some cognitive <laughs> behavioral interventions i mean you don't you know most of the time i mean they're, it's just 
it's just for me, it's like, what takes precedence and what do I believe about how people get stuck and change? And, and I, I, I believe the tenants that, you know, feelings often come out of, of um, you know, thoughts and beliefs about things, but there is some research around, um, and I, I should have looked this up before, um, but um, around, we often think, oh, this experience happens. I have, I have this feeling about it. And therefore, you know, that, that's how it works, right? Or I have a feeling like ever, but what, what they found is it actually, um, there's like separate cataloging of experiences, mm -hmm. makes sense. And I tell clients and for, it really resonates for some of my clients. So, so in other words, you know, I had this experience. Yes, I gave this meaning to it and this feeling came, but actually they're separate things, right? Mm -hmm. And that I can have an experience and then catalog it in a different way, which will lead to some different things as well, right? And so, um, so with attachments, as, you know, we can kind of begin to challenge that, or like in group, or even in the context of individual therapy, to say, so what does that mean for our relationship, mm -hmm. right? And so, for my, some of my clients, especially at the beginning, especially once you have like anxious attachment or something, I'll tell them, I'll say, you know, if you want, call call my phone, you know, leave me a message, you know, at, at, like in the middle of the night or something, like you know, call and leave me a message if you need me to call you back tell me that you need me to call me back, but call you back. But if you don't just say, I don't need you to call me back. I just wanted to hear your voice. Right. Uh -huh. And so, um, and it's not so much that my voice is soothing, which it's really not, but, but it's that, okay, I know there's this person and they can begin to hone that, uh, that sense of the other, right. That there's somebody who's soothing that I can call upon and begin to like hone that internalized object representation, right. That so it can be different and I can learn it. Oh, and I can attach maybe right here. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, uh -huh. A little bit and and i and you know i try to make decisions about if a client runs from treatment like okay am i going to chase or not right and that's really based on what i feel about um their attachment style right and so for some clients i'm just going to let them run I'm mm. like, go ahead and run but i do tell my clients if you run i do ask that at some point you pause and turn around to look to see if, if something really scary is chasing you if it is then keep running right that's yeah. smart right but if it's not then maybe you know, broach coming back, right? Um, <laughs> like that. And so um, kind of giving them space to kind of figure that out for themselves, you know? So, yeah. or if someone has an avoidant attachment style, right? And they're just gonna get pissed off that you care about them, right? And then <laughs> their vulnerability gets elicited. So I, I get that too, right? So you need space. Okay, you can have, you can have space, right? Or clients who are angry. Um, I'm not afraid of anger. I, I, it makes sense to me why people are angry sometimes, right? I don't always think it's a secondary emotion, right? Like, oh, people mm. got hurt enough, but now sometimes they're angry because it's a pissy situation and they should be angry, you know? Yeah. And so, um, you know, allowing them the anger, that's all, that's all right, whatever, because we're going to do this attachment dance with the goal of eventually um, having some healthy attachment, right? And then they mm. can begin to challenge some of their fears and beliefs about attaching to others, so. Um, so for me, they really work hand in hand because both it, it's dynamic, right? And I, yeah. I believe that all relationships are dynamic. So let me say that too. You can ask people in my agency, they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So even with therapists, right? Like, um, I think we can co-create difficult clients, right? Mm. And, uh -huh. um, and so um, if it's a dynamic relationship, which I believe all relationships are, for me really, and this is where AEDP comes in for me, like how do I want to work with this defense and what's a way that's... Um, more transformative and gentler than just smashing it, you know? So, because mm. um, I don't think any of us, it might be necessary, necessary to smash a defense, but if you think about your own defenses, if, if you say, hey, you got a choice, Daniel, how would you like your defense to be worked with? I don't think anybody wants their defense to be smashed. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, like we, yeah, so. Yeah. So hopefully yeah. that makes I'm trying to speak about it in layman's terms about how I think about uh -huh. the, the theories uh -huh. of 
Yeah, they're very complicated, and I think you did a good job of uh, breaking them down. Um, so, with with attachment theory and working uh, working with clients, let's say you have someone that comes in with maybe an anxious or avoidant style of attachment, and is the maybe the theory or the goal to get them to securely attach to you, and then to generalize that attachment out to other people. If it's individual therapy, I think that's part of the goal, uh-huh. right? Or or if not me. Are there people in their world, right, that mm-hmm. they're kind of drawn to, right? That that we can begin to say, gosh, what would it what would what would it take to have a, that next step, right? Mm-hmm. Or yeah. or um, yeah. So, but ideally for some of them, yeah, that that it's going to happen. Ideally, it's going to happen with me, or at least the process is going to happen with me. In uh-huh. in group, that's the luxury of group, right? There's so many different people, and you can kind of see natural subgroups, right, as mm-hmm. as they're as they're created, and you can use those to really facilitate work. And it doesn't have to be with us. And ideally it, it's not right. And if you look at the group literature anyway, it says that really most of the time uh, clients attribute really good interventions to each other and not to us. So I tell people when I teach class, I'm like, if you're one of these people that you, everybody needs to know it was you who did it, you're going to be disappointed. Right. <laughs> so, but I can, I can get, and, and then we can use this to like, um, I call it put group in your pocket or take group with you. And so I can give you an example from our group. So I had a, a woman who had experienced um, sexual abuse at the hand of a uh, stepsister, right? And um, when she was younger and um, her father caught her stepsister in the act one day and he was mortified, right? Mm-hmm. But the way that my client or group client experienced that was it really induced shame for her, right? Mm-hmm. She saw her father's horror and rather than being able to say, gosh, this is really about my stepsister for her, it was she, so she in some ways internalized a lot of the shame and and, and then just, you know, shame that goes um, oftentimes for survivors of, of abuse. And so- yeah. She would often be involved in these um, relationships, um, which would just, you know, these uh, that are that are kind of typical of folks with like cluster B diagnoses. Right. Um, mm. And so um, and and uh, and but in group one time that um, she really got really close to another a woman in the group. And so we eventually got into a place in, in the work where she said, you know, I just have a hard time saying no. So she had difficulty setting boundaries with people. Well, this makes sense, right? You've yeah. been abused. Your boundaries have been transgressed. Um, then you engage in these kind of reenactments, right? So to speak uh-huh. with all these other people and, you know, are heartbroken and all this other kind of stuff. Of course, you don't know how to set boundaries, right? And so, um, so one of the things we said is like, you know, can you say no? And she said, I really, I really, just don't know how to say no. And I, and I think I believed her, right? She didn't know how to say no. And so we had kind of a natural subgroup and she was close to another woman in the group. And I said, can you say no for her? Right. And so she said, no. And I said, is that how it needs to hear? She goes, no, it needs to be stronger. Right. And so the two of them in group played with this no wow. until the group, other group member who she was close to said it in such a way, because she had, a, she trusted her and had this attachment where she could hear it. And so I said, okay, until you can say no for yourself, when you're out in the world, can you hear her saying no for you? Right. And mm-hmm. so take the group with you. Uh-huh. Uh, and she could, right. And it was really healing to her. And then, you know, all, research suggests altruism is therapeutic, right? If we think about the therapeutic factors, it's one, of the, it's one of the more therapeutic. And so the other group member then, you know, is helping, facilitate healing for someone that she feels close to as well. So, so we're, we're strengthening that attachment and also doing that piece of the work, right? Which optic relations says, I'm going to internalize you, right? So that yeah. when I look inside, I've got this thing that's going to help me, you know, it's going to either soothe me or help me function or help me know that boundaries are okay. Uh-huh. Right. And then I can set them with folks. So, so that's okay. how I see it working. Right. So. Yeah. That works. 
That's that's really neat. This is kind of going out on a limb here. I don't know if you would have quite an answer, but what do you think for someone like her who um, felt the shame and then, but also saw the saw the way her father reacted? Um, and how much of that do you think you know that she has? She feels like she has to carry for her father, knowing that her father reacted in such a way. Like, what do you think that does? Oh, what do I think that, okay, you asked me multiple questions there. So, so yeah, I can, um, I could hear the first part of the question. Like, yeah, maybe I have to carry this for my family. And in some ways we would listen for that pattern, right? Uh -huh. So in some ways it seems like you carry, oh, sorry, no, silences. Okay. seems like you, um, um, sorry, just silence. Mm. There we go. Um, yeah, like, like in some ways you tend to carry the, um, difficult affect for your family, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh -huh. what, would it, what would it look like to give that up, you know, mm -hmm. type thing? So I think you could go that route with yeah. it. Yeah, especially if we're hearing that pattern, you know, or we could say, gosh, it seems to be really painful to have to carry the weighty things for your mm -hmm. family, you know? And, and, and you know, knowing that, um, you know, if you think about diversity issues, not so much with this about shame and trauma, but that oftentimes it's, it's, it's hard like sometimes I think we don't want to miss the piece about, yeah, culturally there is cost to making a different decision, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, so so if I choose not to respond in this way to my family, uh, you know, then maybe I lose the support of my family, right? Or mm -hmm. or, or whatever, right? And so um, uh, trying to trying to gauge those things too, so that, you know, counting the cost, I was talking about this the other night in group, I said, sometimes living out our values means we have to count the cost, right? Because living out our values, we're going to live more congruently and living congruently helps people feel better. But it doesn't mean that it's without pain um, or without distress, right? But it does yeah. mean in the long run, when you look back, you can say, I've lived a congruent life, right? And so then it needs to be some discussion around lived versus stated values, right? Like what, what are your real, lived, I, I hear your stated values, you know, red, white, and blue, mom and apple pie, whatever they are, right? But what are your lived values if you're really honest with yourself? Uh -huh. You know, and then um, okay, what does what does that mean? Right. And I think sometimes we say we have lived values until we get in distressing situations. And then we go, oh, that's not my, that's not my <laughs> value, right. And then I'm like, okay, okay, that's fine too. Now you know and you're being honest. But I think sometimes it's important to talk about the consequences of this. Every choice has consequences. Just some of them are more enjoyable than others. Uh -huh. So I think in that case, depending on some cultural factors, I might say, gosh, you know, what will this cost and how 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 do you move forward knowing that, you know, mm -hmm. and not saying that it's a the wrong or bad decision, but just that this will be part of it as well. So mm -hmm. yeah, good. Thank you. Um you mentioned ADP, so accelerated experiential dynamic psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. Um and so defenses in this aspect would be, you mentioned, you know, not only how can I, how can I get into the client's room, but what, what do they have that's up that's keeping me from entering? Mm -hmm. And so can you talk about a little bit about ADP and Diana Fosha's kind of theory about defenses and yeah, uh, and probably someone else could do this better uh -huh. better than I could. So I'll put that disclaimer on it. But for her, she's got like these triangles of defenses, right? And oftentimes they're also around like red red light and green light affects, right? And so mm -hmm. kind of looking at what what affects and and this is not not her language. This is some um, uh, sensory motor language. But what what affects are procedurally learned, right? And keep mm -hmm. people from getting to more transformational 
ethics, right? And so, and beginning to explore there, but also kind of going at it, um, I, the way I describe her, which I, I mean as a compliment, is almost like um, slow moving crude oil on a slightly slanted slope, right? Like it's, <laughs> it's moving, you know, but it's just so slow that if you're not paying attention, right? But I think that's part of her work in terms of working with clients. And so to really address a defense so she and so she'll look and say is it a soft defense or a hard defense right and if it's a if it's a soft defense then i can proceed right and so and and we do that by kind of pressing up against the edges of it and exploring it right or is it a hard defense and a hard defense if we press up against the edges we run the risk of entrenching the defense right uh -huh. so so kind of looking to say gosh you know what's the function of the defense right because all defenses have functions uh -huh. right and then kind of getting them to explore um basically how like how in my language how's this working for you you know uh -huh. or, or what's been the cost of this for you and what would happen if we just like um uh, uh just took one little piece away so to give you example you know like like maybe we have a client and um you know a, I said, gosh, it seems like when we begin to talk about your shame that you will, um, you look away, you know, mm. and I'm curious whether you can just look at me mm. for just a second, right? Yeah. Like what would happen if you just looked for a second, right? And, and to have them look, right? And hopefully for me to mirror compassion, right? Or empathy, mm -hmm. right? And to begin to explore what affects arise there right like that and some of those are you know gratitude or gosh relief this person's not shaming me and things mm -hmm. like that because maybe it's a totally different experience from what they've had up to this point right and so uh -huh. and, and shame makes people want to hide and run right yeah. and then to kind of meta process that so what is it like then knowing that here what you got was kindness right versus like shame or anger or judgment like that but but very very slow and then you know and and to really process what's going on for them in the in the room right so in the individual session or in the, in the group within the context of the group so but it's really just saying all right um i don't i don't want to i don't want to engage the defense in such a way that the client's going to get more entrenched in it so for example for me then what i'm trying to listen for and feel and sense is like does it feel like it's a power struggle Right. If so, or that we're about to get in this like bat battle, so to speak, then I'm I'm going to move away from that. Right. So because I don't want to entrench the defense, you know, but I'm going to look for. OK, so what's another avenue? So what other affects can we begin to work with to perhaps bring down the wall, you know, on those affects that keep them stuck? Right. Uh -huh. Which which would be like um, anger sometimes keeps people stuck. Um, like I said, for me, it's an assessment of is this is this kind of productive anger or is this like an entrenched defense like that so mm. anxiety can keep people stuck you know all those things so, so perhaps if uh if they seemed angry or avoidant and they looked away in shame and you said you know i wonder what would happen if you were you are you able to look at me for just a split second and they said like no i can't do that then that's a pretty strong defense and you don't want to really yeah and i think what i would do then yeah it's probably just go okay okay that's okay it's okay it's 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 i'm glad that you just have had the, found the courage to come in here and even share that with me right so yeah. i'm gonna just leave it there yeah yeah um i um i like to do trauma work and uh i worked with someone um one time who had was an international student and had um serial abuse at the hands of a parent in in their home country hmm. um, which the other parent did nothing about until they had a conflict with the other parent and so they tried to um bring it up 
in a, in a, a case a court proceeding uh-huh. and basically the message um, from the judge was never tell anybody this because it'll ruin your life and so basically the person didn't get any help and so mm-hmm. came over here and um, was in a, a program I just don't want to reveal it too much because I don't want yeah, to yeah. it. was in a program where of course they chose that program given their history right you know mm-hmm. and um, but when they came to see me at the beginning um, they said, um, they sat down and they, and I knew why they were coming because they had been referred from their department. And they said to me, they said, don't look at me. And I said, okay, well, and if you think about it, this is your social engagement system, your whole vagus nerve comes through here, right? That we're always going safe, unsafe, safe, unsafe, safe, unsafe, right? No mm. second. I mean, their brain was just sending and rightfully so messages of unsafe, 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 unsafe. Their whole world was unsafe. So I get it. So they said, don't look at me. So I said, okay. So I just looked away and for, for the first couple of times i tried to look back and this person would be like i told you don't look at me so mm. i said so, so like three three tries in the in the first session i'd like you know, three straight out so i said okay so i have a window so i just looked out my window right for uh-huh. 50 minutes we did this for three sessions three sessions of we would come uh, they would come in and i'd start and they'd be like don't look at me and so finally at the end of the third session they let me look at them huh. right uh-huh. and so then i tried to invite um, some curiosity just about their internal experience, but very slow work, right? Mm, and and right. not not brief work, not solution focused, right? Like <laughs> we're talking. Um, uh-huh. Somebody asked me the other day, they're like, "What do you what do you think about? Like, did you just were you thinking about them the whole time?" I said, "No, probably not. I mean, you know, because we were just talking about presence." I said, "But at some point, I was like, okay, well, I, I need to look at I need to not look at them because they've asked me <laughs> not to, and they're setting a boundary which before they haven't had a right to do so." Yeah. So I thought, you know, so like I said, I looked out the window and I was like, oh. one time I think a helicopter flew by and I'm like, what's the helicopter doing? <laughs> you know, we're, we're downtown Richmond. I'm like, what's the helicopter doing right here? So, um, but just that kind of work. Yeah. We're like, hmm. I'm not going to, this is a really strong defense. It's there for a reason. The reason makes sense to me. Uh-huh. I need to get beyond the defense, but really well, why would they let it down if, you know, this is the first test and they've said no, and I disregard their no, you know, mm, so, yeah. So, um, yeah, working like that. So I'm trying to, yeah, I'm trying to li- li- listen and feel um, the defense, you know, mm. do an intervention, but depending on the strength of the response, that's fine. You know, so, so I want to, I want to talk to them eventually about, and this is ADP, right? Like, What's the nature of the defense? What's the function that it served? Because it served a function. And at some point it was a um, typically a helpful one, right? Because most of the time when people come to therapy, the thing that used to work before it doesn't work now. And that's why they're coming to see us, right? Mm-hmm. And so to talk about the function of it um, and then to begin to explore what's underneath it, meta process that and then kind of look forward about, gosh, so, so part of this was to keep yourself safe, right? Like, mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, what are some other ways, you know, you're, you're in a different place now, environmentally, you know, emotionally, chronologically, right, all those things. And so how can you keep yourself safe now in a way where you didn't, you know, where you couldn't before? It wasn't that you didn't, you just really couldn't. So. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit about cluster B personality disorders? What are they and your interest in them? Yeah, you know, probably part of this is um, as a social worker. <laughs> Social workers, you know, um, social workers get thrown everything, right? And so in some ways, um, in some ways, you know, it's kind of like you better learn how to work with folks with these um, diagnoses, right? And so it's more what, you know, traditionally used to be called your personality disorders, right? And, and traditional thought about it was, you know, 
by age like three or five, these people kind of have these personality structures and, um, you know, that's it, you know, and, and so, um, and so the oftentimes what would happen is someone would come and they would have a personality disorder. And so, you know, the, the, the clinician talk about them was not the most, um, um, positive. Right. And I, and I, I'm not one who's like, oh, we always have to be, you know, sunshine and rainbows about our clients. Right. I mean, yeah. I think clinicians can have really macabre <laughs> conversations about stuff, especially depending on the type of work that you do. So I, so I'm not one of these people that's like, oh, but I, but I do think how we think about clients and their presenting concerns impacts how we treat them and how we medicommunicate, which is even more important, right? Cause we're always mm-hmm. medicating regardless of whether our lips are moving or not. Right. And mm-hmm. so, so how I think about them and how they got to where they are um, really impacts how I treat them and the interventions I do. So if you think about it, if I said, yeah, you got someone with borderline personality disorder, it's historically the response is going to be different from if I said, you know, you have someone who has a history of extensive trauma Mm. um, with little family support, Mm. right? Who's then gone through all these other things. Well, gosh, when I say that, then it tends to elicit empathy from people, right? So this is true for most people who come with a cluster B, some kind of cluster B diagnosis, but it's just re- reflected in different behaviors, right? So someone mm-hmm. might have borderline personality disorder, they're going to split more. So you're all good or you're all bad, which none of us is either of those, right? Um, uh-huh. You know, um, they're going to have really intense relationships and they'll love you today and hate you tomorrow or love you today and hate you five minutes from now, you know, type thing. Mm-hmm. Or if someone comes with um, more narcissistic personality disorder, right? Like this kind of grandiose self, which is really hiding this, um, shamed self, right? All those kind of things. So, so it's going to reflect in different ways. And then also there's been more recent research around this that actually for some folks with cluster B diagnosis, their brains are different, right? Like different parts are smaller and things like that. And then Fred de Blasio is a social worker up at University of Maryland who talks about trying to work with folks with um, cluster B diagnoses, especially like borderline personality disorder as almost like they have a learning disability, right? And so there is going to be a cognitive piece to it. There is going to be a repetitive piece to it for them, um, you know, but and slow and steady work to begin to change some of those things, right? Mm. For and so, um, and then if you look at the group literature, um, a lot, uh, um, you know, there'd be this writings about. I mean, DBT groups are made for folks with cluster B, right? Um, yeah. But if you're thinking about more like interpersonal process groups, like it's helpful to have some folks with a personality disorder, but not everybody, right? Because uh-huh. the goal is going to be different. And also they're going to get different feedback about the experience, right? So maybe they experience it and they get activated and they have this kind of labile response, right? And so we can explore the meaning of that for them, but then we can broaden it out to the group and say, well, gosh, Daniel, I'm curious how you experience it because Christy got really upset. And then you can reflect back what you saw. And then it gives them an opportunity to see, oh, well, gosh, mm. here's three other people, their response responses were different and to begin to maybe get new sets of eyes, so to speak, and new sets of ways to, to look at this thing. Uh-huh. Right. Um, and to, um, um, work on it. I will say the flip side, sometimes it's difficult, right. Um, cause, um, folks with cluster B diagnoses aren't always easy to be around. And so the other piece in terms of the work in, um, group is it's going to elicit stuff for the other folk, but I think that can be rich. You know, because we can still do the work with them if every relationship's dynamic to say, okay, so I'm curious what what got pulled for you because you don't typically talk that way in group to other people, right? And then people, uh-huh. and, and, you know, um, so my client I told you about before who uh, was really bereft as an infant and stuff like that was in my group for a while. And I had a, that client who I told you about who um, had experienced the sexual abuse at the hands of her stepsister just um, 
cussed him out one day, right? And she's like, you know, excuse me, like apologize before she did it. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He was thrilled, right? Because that's what he wanted to elicit, right? Uh Like, yeah, this is what people are like. And, you know, and so, Mm -hmm. so in some ways, but for her, I said, what happened? I said, because I agree with you. You don't talk to people that way. And and she was like, you remind me of my father. Well, here we go. Now we've got the other piece of this, right? And we can Uh do the work for her around that piece, right? But I think Uh um, a couple of things, like we need to be, we, the leaders, clinicians need to be able to tolerate what gets activated for folk, right? Mm. To trust that we have the skills to modulate it. Um, I think an individual, most of the time we feel pretty comfortable doing that, right? Or, yeah. or at least willing to sit with it. But I think in group too, knowing, knowing that we you know, have the ability and the skills to make decisions to help modulate that, or to know that at some times we're gonna have to be more active and just to say, we're, I'm gonna stop you right now. Mm from saying that and I'm gonna tell you why, right? And then if there's any response, it gets you know, elicited back to me mm-hmm. um, versus like a group member. So, but yeah, but, but for me, I think we all come by our behaviors honestly. That, that doesn't mean they're helpful. That doesn't mean they're healthy. That doesn't mean they're productive. They can be really hurtful. Um, but we, we didn't just like one day decide to, you know, whatever, like, like all, all of life shapes us. And so for me, it's, you know, coming with that understanding and that it's very true for folks with uh, cluster B. And especially if your brain's different, like we don't get all, well, let me back. I was about to say, we don't get all of whack for people if they have like, um, ADD, but actually sometimes people do. Right. And then students yeah. come, they're like, oh my gosh, I wish I knew this before. Cause my parents have just been like, oh, I can't you complete blah, blah, blah. You know, they're like, hey, yeah. So, so, um, but yeah, I think sometimes just um, some understanding, right, um, goes a long way towards starting to change some internal structures for folks and then to help for that part um, with the brain in terms of like working things differently. Hmm. That, that makes me think that last, the last part there with, with object relations theory, um, if someone comes in and they have this, this internalized object of, let's say, the judgmental father, right? Yeah. Um, is it, is the work to, to replace that object with a different type of object or what kind of different objects might there be? And yeah, um, yeah. all kinds of internalized object representations, right? So if we can incorporate some more soothing object representations, I think that's really um, important. Right. And so, um, uh, yeah, and so, and, and like I said, we don't want to bash, smash uh, representation because if I look inside and I have nothing, where do I turn, right? Uh-huh. I mean, it, think about like if just the world were void, right? Uh-huh. So, and, and that can be really anxiety provoking. But I do think what we want to do. So, if if they if they if that's an accurate object representation of their father, I think kind of our work is around to say to acknowledge that and validate that. Yet, yes, hmm. it, you know, and not all people are like that or not all men are like that or that's that i hear that that's how you're experiencing you know steve Uh uh, but i'm curious about if that's really um what we've got here right so i I can give you an example from group we had a you know groups meet in a circle right and um you know clinicians wouldn't know what to do if we didn't sit in circles right at places so (laughs) but um so we had a group member who used to when she would come to group the very first thing she would do was scoot her chair out of the circle right interesting and yeah and we had another group member which was great because they were the first i've noticed it but she was actually the first one to make a process comment she said you know every time you come to the group the very first thing you do is scoot your chair out of the circle and the woman was like huh like she had no conscious awareness of it, right? Mm. So we said, well, I wonder if we can explore it. Like what happens for you? And what she shared was a story of 
her father um, practiced martial arts, like had his own dojo and stuff like that. Mm. But um, he would hit them around like the table if he got angry at them. Right. And so what she had learned to do over time was to move herself far enough away from him that she was literally beyond arm's reach. Right. So so for her, it was this procedurally learned thing at this Uh point. Right. And so part of our work was like, and so we heard that. And so we said, you know, the good news is your father is not here. Mm. Right. So Mm. then we could kind of explore, do you, do you feel unsafe with anybody else? in the group right and she really couldn't name anybody that she felt unsafe with so we said i wonder if we can do an experiment and wonder if you would move your chair just a little you don't have to move it all the way into the group let's just see what happens and of course it would elicit anxiety for her right so like i said earlier the way to get over anxiety is through it so can you just sit moving your chair up this much Mm. in the night session right you know and then you know at the end checking back in to be like so how are you you made it through a whole 90 minutes right of Uh you know and then Oh, I'm safe. Right. So then she can begin to change internalized object representations of mm. other, right. That not everybody's here to whack me if they disagree with me. Right. Yeah, and we can yeah. begin to change it that way. Right. So sometimes, yeah. sometimes the object re- representation is accurate, right? Mm. Like, yes, mm. this person is that, um, but it's not true of everybody. Right. And it's not mm. true of like men or fathers or authority figures. It's, it's true of this one person or sometimes that's not accurate. Right. It's just um, a, a compilation of things. So. Yeah, that's very interesting. It reminds me, there's a, I forget what the logical fallacy is, but basically, you know, I met Steve and he has red hair and he's from Georgia. So all people from Georgia have red hair. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's how we think, right? You know? Yeah, yeah. When I used to teach, I had really, really, really long hair and our uh, cross country coach had really, really long hair. Same thing, a kid was like, are you related to coach so-and-so? I'm like, <laughs> I, said, no. I said, no, why would you ask that? And same thing. They're like, you must have really long hair. I said, that's true. That's true. <laughs> we are in no way related. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, it's that, it's so cute to see the way that kids think, but like, that's, that's like we just said, that's how we all tend to like, we all think like that still. Yeah. We, well, we all get ways. stuff, right? I mean, yeah, cause yeah. Our, our brains are meaning making, right. Uh-huh. And our brains are lean towards what'll keep you safe. Uh-huh. Right. And, and so, yeah, so oftentimes we're going to come up with these attributions that that aren't accurate, but we're yeah. living at them, you know. So yeah. 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 Any um, any good or who who would you say are maybe some influential authors in your field that you look up to? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I like I like the people who laid the foundations, right? So. Mm-hmm. Um, so Winnicott, right. And object yeah. relations, um, Scharf and Scharf have written some really good books. They used to be married. They're not now. So, um, oh. kind of, you know, so, so, so some of their books, they're together on the picture. And so we're like, Oh, you know, I feel bad about that, oh. um, type thing. Um, I would say Bowlby, right. All his volumes on attachment. Um, mm. and matter of fact, my, uh, director that I was telling you about at the beginning, who was the co-founder of vision 49, when he, when he died, he, uh, his wife, you know, she invited me and another clinician who were really close to him to come to his library and write and say, please take books. He would, he would love for you to have some of his books. And so I took his, his Bowlby books, right? Oh, nice. Yeah. So in terms of my attachment to him as well. So, um, so I think, you know, Mary Main, you know, an adult attachment inventory, this Mm. book that I told you about, that's more recent, um, about group and attachment theory is a really good book. Um, you know, I'm also into somatic um, interventions and things like that. So, you know, the body remembers, mm. um, 
volumes one and two, the body keeps the score, right? So the body remembers the Babette Rothschild. Um, uh, the body keeps the score is Bessel van der Kolb. Um, uh, Pat Ogden's book around sensory motor psychotherapy. Um, all the stuff with Stephen Porges and Dev Dana around polyvagal theory, right? Which, uh, um, so any of their stuff is, is good. I, I will say that if you read the original version of polyvagal theory by Steve Dana, you know, he's a researcher and a scientist. It's pretty dense. So I, I used to okay. like, our, our, our office is, um, it's a big circle, right? Like maybe there's offices, but it's a circle. And I used to like go to the next door and I'd read a paragraph out loud. <laughs> and people would just look at me like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, me neither, right? So I'd go to the next office and kind of by the time I got halfway around the circle, I'd be like, oh, okay, 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 okay. No, uh, uh, so, uh, but Deb Dana is a, she actually, is, I believe she's a social worker who actually um, kind of is like the clinical face of the work they do there. So she translates it. All like, right, <laughs> cool. But the really cool thing about that too is like, um, so we think about regulation, like she made a statement about our nervous system is familiar with all these states, right? So the mm. states of dysregulation, but also calm and um, kind of ventral vagal states. And, and I've thought about that because I'm like, I'm not sure it's true for everybody, especially if they have a pretty extensive childhood trauma. But when I say it to clients, it really seem they really seem to latch on to them. I'm like, you, your body knows this somewhere, right? Mm. And, uh -huh. be, and, and they're like, yeah, yeah. And they can, and they begin to explore kind of internal um, experiences wow. and be like, yeah, you know, and so they can find it somewhere. And also mm. that tells us what's been internalized as well too, right? It's a physiological thing, but there's uh -huh. this, also this experience that then gets cataloged and uh -huh. gets internalized. So um, I, I think it's really powerful. That. That's really neat. I've always been fascinated by, I've heard stories about uh, people who have migraines that have just always had them or back pain or whatever it is. And then after psychotherapy, they no longer have that. That's. Yeah. I yeah. Um, I have a trauma certification from Lisa Ferens. I don't know if you heard of her. She's a social worker. She has her own like trauma Institute. Now she used to do it mm. out of um, UMBC. And so I, I took the, um, it's like 66 hours. I don't know how many it is now, but it was then I took it with her uh, when it, she's back in UMBC. But one of the things that we did was, you know, think about these things like you, is there a part of your body that just always hurts, right? Mm. Kind of focusing there kind of, so this directed mindfulness piece, right? Uh -huh. And then really speaking to that part of your body and apologizing for, you know, the ways you, whatever. And so, and so I did that and my, my lower back tends to be tight. And I was like, whoa, yeah, same thing. I was like, <laughs> All right, you know, so I was like, okay, I don't get it at this moment, but I get that it feels better, mm, right? And wow. So, um, yeah, so just kind of thinking about directed mindfulness. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not one for big mindfulness. I mean, there's all this research mindfulness helps, and so I'm not mm -hmm. saying that research doesn't help. I'm just saying that for me, and I think for a lot of American Western Europeans, you know, yeah. Yeah, you yeah. know that whatever. Yeah. But um, directed mindfulness and inviting curiosity mm. about internal experiences versus fear. Mm. Um, at least for for me and um, the students I work with, they they buy into that, you know, yeah. and it, it makes sense to them. So yeah, that's really neat. Yeah. Okay, Christy, uh, this has been very, very uh, just fun and informative, and I've learned a lot. And I thank you. Hopefully, for, it's helpful. If not, yeah. you know, my apologies. <laughs> no, it's very helpful. Thank you. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So. Thanks for making the time. All right. Thanks Have for sharing day. your wisdom with us. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.